1: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. And welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Daniela Gutierrez-Flores, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Rebecca Earle to talk about her most recent book entitled Feeding the People, the Politics of the Potato, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Thank you, Professor Earl, for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. So... Um, Feeding the People traces a global history of the potato from its origins in the mountains in the Andes to virtually every corner of the world. Um, Your book traces how our contemporary ideas about eating, such as diet being a matter of individual choice, how these ideas are deeply connected with the emergence of a capitalist system and the free market. So before we begin, um, I wonder if you say a few words um about yourself and this project in particular um i'm specifically interested in knowing how you beca- you became um interested in potatoes and how this book ties onto your previous academic work particularly your book um the body of the conquistador which
0: also explores food um from a
2: historical perspective
0: well, that's a good question because, as you're suggesting, there's a strong connection between that earlier project, The Body of the Conquistador, and this new work on potatoes. So that, that earlier project was looking at the way in which food was part of the colonial experience in Spanish America, and I was particularly interested in how European settlers thought that their bodies reacted to the experience of living in a very different environment and eating very different foods and following a different sort of lifestyle. How did travel, in other words, change the physical nature of people in colonial Latin America? How did, to rephrase that, how did people feel that their bodies were changed by this experience? So I was quite interested in food as a way ultimately of telling a story about the way that people at the time explained the differences that they perceived between themselves and native peoples in the Americas and indeed anybody else in the world. So how was food something that helped create what we might call race? That was kind of what that earlier project was about. So I was, I was very interested in what European reactions were to the foods of the Americas, to maize and to sweet potatoes and pineapples and potato potatoes and chili peppers and all these other foods that were unfamiliar to Europeans. So I got quite interested in those foods in general. But I was also conscious that at the same time that Europeans were traveling to the Americas and encountering for the first time for themselves these foods of the Americas, those same foods were traveling all around the world and were being met by people in all sorts of different contexts. So chili peppers were and pineapples were traveling to the Indian subcontinent at the same time that Europeans were arriving in Mexico, Peru, or wherever. And it seemed to me clear that the stories of how those foods from the Americas traveled was part of the history of colonialism, but it also had its own dynamic that wasn't the same as the dynamic of how Spaniards responded to potatoes in Peru, for example. So I got quite interested in this global dissemination of food and what I guess people sometimes talk about as the Colombian exchange. So I was partly interested in that. I was particularly interested in potatoes for for two reasons. One is because potatoes are so global now. It's remarkable to think of a world before potatoes in some ways because they're so familiar to us. They're from absolutely everywhere. And they, I mean, they really are from everywhere. So we could say the potatoes originated in the Andes and that's for sure the case, but it's also true that there are new kinds of potatoes that have been developed and bred all around the world. So I mentioned India uh, a moment ago and India is now a major breeder of varieties of potatoes that are adapted to grow in semi-tropical conditions and there are lots of potatoes that i think one can very legitimately say are from india because they are produced there. so potatoes are now from all over the place china is the world's biggest producer of potatoes not you know not peru or bolivia so the potato is a super global food and it's it's history is very much connected to the history of the modern world so that was part of why i was interested in potatoes But there was another reason why I was really interested in the story about potatoes. And that's because there is an existing scholarship on how potatoes spread, particularly around Europe. And that story, which has been told by many, in fact, very good scholars um, repeatedly, that story goes something like this. It says that when potatoes first arrived in Europe in the 1500s, They were of interest to botanists and to learned scientists and scholars who studied them and wrote about their botanical features, but that ordinary people refused to eat them. And the explanations for why ordinary people supposedly refused to eat potatoes are either that potatoes were peculiar, and they were sort of knobbly, and they grew under the ground, and they were a bit lumpy, and you didn't grow them from seeds like proper plants. You you grew them from from seed potato, you know, from bits of cut up tuber, and that that was very confusing to Europeans, and that they're not mentioned in the Bible, and so probably they're not really good to eat, and that altogether they were just really peculiar. And that it was only in the 18th century when far-sighted and benevolent aristocrats and scientists started to encourage potato consumption as a way of avoiding famine. Only then did ordinary people grudgingly and unwillingly start to eat potatoes, but now everybody loves them and they're a staple and that's the story of the potato. And that story really got up my nose. It seemed to be really misguided on almost every level. That It seemed manifestly wrong that people in Europe only ate things that were mentioned in the Bible. I mean, it's very easy to go through a long list of things that ordinary people in early modern Europe ate that don't feature in the Bible. It's not true that early modern people didn't know how to cultivate um, plants from anything other than seeds. I mean, we should remember that the the tulip mania craze of the 17th century was you know, going on in the Netherlands during the 17th century and that the Dutch were quite capable of growing tulips from bulbs. So why should we think that a potato would flummox an early modern farmer? It's also, this was the thing that bothered me most about this story, it's also something that flies completely in the face of what we know about small farmers now and in the past to suggest that they're inherently conservative and will never do anything new unless they're dragged, kicking and screaming into the modern world by <laughs> by agronomists. That's not how peasant farmers operate around the world. And there's a lot of scholarship that, that shows this from many places and from many times. So altogether, this, this story about the potato spread to Europe just really bothered me. It seemed it was a sort of... S- Injustice to small farmers, most of all because I strongly suspected that if anybody was learning how to cultivate potatoes and was slowly adapting them to the different day lengths and climates of, of Europe, it was likely to be small farmers. It certainly wasn't good. Botanists, in gentlemen botanists, might be figuring out how to do this, but they weren't going to be figuring out how to do this as a way of actually cultivating this foodstuff. They'd be perhaps exploring it as a botanical curiosity. So altogether, I became kind of obsessed with finding evidence that ordinary people in early modern Europe were eating potatoes. And that really, I think, is the genesis of this entire book.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting that... uh potatoes are precisely well commonly associated with the common people so it's interesting that that was the historical narrative um, that it was later um, accepted by by the common people no.
0: yeah I mean it's I mean to say well so why was this story about these 18th century potato promoters why why does that story? Why did that have any traction at all? Well, because it's true that in the 18th century, potatoes became a topic of politics. They became a topic of of governance and a topic of much discussion across Europe. And it's true that in the 18th century, many, many scientists and politicians and p- philanthropists became really interested in potatoes as a good source of food and started promoting them. So there was a, a great flourishing of pro-potato promotional work published in the 18th century. And I think a lot of scholars have noticed that and have correctly observed that there was a surge of interest in the potato. And they read all of these people saying, potatoes are just great. It would be wonderful if everybody ate more potatoes. People should eat more potatoes. Potatoes, very good. Eat more of them. And understandably concluded from this that there was a reluctance to eat potatoes hitherto. And that these individuals had been responsible for a change in attitude. So there's there's a reason why people, I think, told this story that something was happening in the eighteenth century, and that's because something did happen in the eighteenth century. But what had changed in the eighteenth century wasn't really that nobody had been eating potatoes, and that suddenly philanthropists discovered them. It was that the nature of government changed in the eighteenth century, and what you needed to do to govern well changed quite dramatically in the late 17th and over the 18th century, that, which meant that politicians and statesmen and public-spirited individuals started to become really concerned about nutrition, if we can use that word, or they started to become very interested in building strong populations and in looking for nourishing foods that would build up hardy and robust laborers and sailors and workers who could make their nation stronger than other nations. And that was really, I think, what was behind this interest in the potato in the 18th century.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the first things I wanted to ask, um, its as I was reading your book, and, and it's actually a question you ask your readers yourself, um, and it might strike our listeners as a rather odd question, but I kept thinking, what is a potato? Um, you know, like, maybe we need a reminder because it's so interesting to me how its flavor, its caloric content, its um, nutritional qualities, and even its physical aspect, all these things played an important um, part in all of the ideas that um, surrounded it um, historically. So can you maybe, like, talk us through what special characteristics of the potato um, were particularly interesting to, um, in different historical contexts, because is there any other food that um,
0: stirred so much discussion and, and controversy? So what is a potato? That's a very good question. And (laughs) I was, I was just listening to, um, to a, a, a nice podcast um, called Eat This Podcast, which I recommend strongly, um, <laughs> done by somebody called Jeremy Chofus that was talking about the fact that I think this year is the um, will the um, United Nations or the FAOs, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN's International Year of Fruits and Vegetables. Mm. And the podcast was talking about what is a fruit as opposed to a vegetable. And it was saying basically that this is not really a very good question in some ways, um, because the botanical description of what a fruit and a vegetable is isn't really relevant to what a fruit or a vegetable is in terms of how we think about them in terms of food. Although, having said that it wasn't a very good question, the podcast then went on to talk about it very interestingly at some length. But so I think the same distinction between what does botany say and what does cuisine say about what is a potato, I think the same that same contrast applies because so botanists would say that a potato potato is something that's scientifically called a solanum tuberosum. It's from the same family as tomatoes and chili peppers and aubergines and a variety of other things that we eat and also deadly nightshade, which we try to avoid eating. And so it has a certain botanical um set of characteristics but there are lots of other things that we call potatoes and sweet potatoes are probably the most obvious example and they're botanically totally different from potato potatoes they're they're a different classified as a different um genus and family they come they have a different um appearance they well, what else is different about them? They have different origins. They probably originated in a number of different parts of the world. They're totally different plants. But in English, we call them both types of potato, and the same similarity applies in lots of other languages. And that's because in some ways they're very similar in culinary terms, and people use them in very similar ways. So the question of what a potato is sort of depends on who's asking. is it a botanist who's asking or or is it somebody who wants to wants to cook something so so potatoes and sweet potatoes and the other tubers that are that we might all connect together and we might think of jerusalem artichokes or yams or a whole variety of other manioc other tubers they have lots of really good qualities they're very, very calorific. So, if you want to get as many, I mean, which isn't to say potatoes are fattening, but to say that if you want to be getting as much calories out of a plot of land as you can, potatoes and actually manioc as well is a super effective way of using your land effectively. So if you want to be growing food that will nourish you and your family, you do really well to plant potatoes because you can get a lot of calories out of a small plot of land. And they have lots of other sort of agricultural indicators that are really good for them. That if you want to get the most calories out of a liter of water, for example, so if you want to be sparing with your water and you don't want to be having to use a lot of water to grow your crops Potatoes are are one of the top plants for getting calories per liter of water expended in irrigation. So they have lots of agricultural qualities that make them really good. There are many varieties that grow in all sorts of different soils. You can cultivate them on marginal land. You can cultivate them by hand on steep slopes that aren't good for growing grain. They're quite rich in a number of vitamins, which make them not just you know, nourishing but actually nutritious in a variety of different ways. They have lots of really good culinary and agricultural qualities, which I think help explain why they've been so popular all around the world and why peasants in northern China adopted them the same as peasants in hilly regions of the Alps in Switzerland. They're they're a really good food for a good crop for utilizing land that's not so good for growing grain on, for example. But they have another benefit over grain as well. And and this is something that um, the anthropologist um, James C. Scott has pointed out in in a number of his his recent books, which is that because they grow underground, tubers are less visible to the state in a variety of different ways. They're, They're not so obvious where they are, And you don't need to harvest them at a particular moment. And when you harvest them, it's not so visible that you're having a wheat harvest. And all of that makes it less attractive as a type of food for states to tax. Mm -hmm. There's not an obvious time when you just, the tax collector just turns up and says, all of that wheat you just harvested, I am going to have. Um, I mean, or not I, but the state is going to take its its certain share, or the church will take a certain share in ties. And indeed, tubers, the drawback of tubers is that they're not so great for storage. I mean, if anybody has ever lost track of a potato, you will know <laughs> that, right? They start sprouting, and then eventually they rot into this really sort of unpleasant-smelling mush, so potatoes are not so great for storing. So even if somebody who would like to exact a tax on the potato harvest turns up after the potatoes have all been harvested, it's actually an awful lot of work to cart them away. Whereas grain that has been threshed and spagged up in sacks is very easy to cart away. So there's lots of reasons why potatoes are less attractive to states as as a thing to tax, and which meant that in Europe, for example. Potatoes were being grown for a very long time by small farmers and villages without anybody trying to exact a tax on them, which is obviously an attraction
2: that's that's fascinating to think um, in the potato in those in those terms um so I think your books can be um, to some extent be seen as belonging to a vast scholarship of um, the history of edible um, commodities We have countless books on the history of maize, the history of tea, the history of sugar, but I, I, in a sense, it's also more than that. Um, so I was wondering what um, your take was um, on how this book is different from just a history of the potato, like even from from your title. Um, it um, brings a different narrative or a different perspective to look at the global history of the potato.
0: Yeah, that's also a good question because there are some very good books on the potato. I mean, there's a classic that was written in 1949 by Redcliffe Sullivan, which is a a staggering work of erudition. It's not a global history of the potato, but it tells an incredibly detailed and fascinating story about the potato spread, particularly in the British Isles. So there are lots of very good and very scholarly works on potatoes, and there are a number of more popular works on potato and a bunch of in-between things that have been written, some in in recent times. So what is different about what I was trying to do? Why did I feel I wanted to write something? Partly because I was interested in this question of how eating has become entangled with governing. So I became interested in this question about when did what ordinary people eat Start to become something that was relevant to statecraft. we're now really familiar with the idea that that governments would would give us nutritional advice, for example. We're used to the idea of having a health you know healthy eating plates that tell you you should eat what sixty percent of your um, diet should come from whole grains and fruits and vegetables, or you know, that's maybe that the right number that we should be limiting the amount of alcohol we take to a certain number of units. That we should be cutting back on on refined sugars. We're very used to this sort of advice emanating from states, and we think that's a proper and correct um, thing for states to be doing. I mean, and I and of you, I, I just, um, embrace. So I'm not trying to say that this is some sort of um, aberration, but that that wasn't mm-hmm. always something that states did. And in fact, if you look at the early modern European books on statecraft, there's nothing about what people ought to eat. There is concern about famine. Rulers since the beginning of recorded history have been aware that famine is politically destabilizing and There was also a lot of religious writing about the importance of feeding the starving, preventing hunger. There's a highly moralized um, discourse about governance and food, which talks about the role that rulers ought to play in preventing starvation and in feeding the hungry. But on giving particular nutritional advice about whole grains, that is not something that features in Machiavelli, right? That is not... That was not something that he was concerned in. There's a a chapter in in Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan called something like The Nourishment of the Commonwealth, which is not about what people eat. It's a metaphor for the economy, really, and for the circulation of goods and gold and silver that that nourishes the, the Commonwealth. So I became quite interested in this question of when did states start to get Interested in whether people were eating whole grains or having too much sugar, etc. That that turns out to be a story that you can tell a bit through the potato. Not that the potato was causal, but the potato was a really good tracer. It's you know, it's it's like you know that a tracer dye that will be injected into you if you're having a hospital investigation that helps you follow a system. Because all of those 18th century writers who were promoting potatoes and saying, potatoes are a super wonderful food, everybody should eat an awful lot more of them, were reflecting the significant change in the nature of statecraft that was taking place in the 18th century. That's why they were interested in looking for nutritious foods. So I've tried to argue in this book that it was in the 18th century that food, in the sense of everyday diets of ordinary people, started to become really important to what governing should entail, and that that's the origins of our expectation now, that governments should be offering nutritional advice and should be encouraging people to eat certain types of foods and dissuading them from eating others. So I've tried to tell a story that connects what we do in our kitchens to ideas about statecraft, and I think that's the thing that was distinctive in a way about what I was trying to do in this book.
2: Yeah, um so another thing I wanted to ask you um about this is that um it it's interesting because it seems like before this moment um it was almost a matter of um of morals, right? to feed the 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 starving, but also to to regulate um, excessive eating or or um, drinking, to that matter, and then it becomes a matter of um, a political matter, right? Um, and you tie it to the emergence of capitalism and ideas of of the free market. Um, I think your chapter two that traces um, that's called enlightened potatoes that traces the these discussions that you are referring to was probably the most surprising part of this story to me to think that uh, political theorists and philosophers dedicated so much time and energy to writing about the humble potato. It's just incredible. Um, So can you, you've already mentioned this, but can you talk about how how the potato came to be at the center of these new models of stagecraft and intervention and ideas of, the population and diet
0: it is really surprising how many people were interested in potatoes I, I when i first started working on this i was going around and i was saying to people who were asking what i was working on i would say well you know there wasn't a single important enlightenment figure who didn't say something about potatoes <laughs> and occasionally people would challenge me on this i remember like for example somebody challenging me and saying what about Voltaire? Voltaire never wrote anything about potatoes, and so I remember thinking, that them's fighting words." I am going to find it. You know, it turns out not very much digging unearth the fact that Voltaire actually did write about potatoes and he wrote a number of letters to other people reporting happily on how he had experimented with growing potatoes on his on his lands and how he had made a potato bread which was a very fashionable thing for elite people to be doing in the eighteenth century and served it to laborers on his land and they loved it and so so I remember thinking, yeah, Voltaire did. So there is this remarkable interest in potatoes, so so why? So, there were these two several things going on. One was that it, population became really central to ideas about good statecraft during this period. So there became an increasing focus over the the late seventeenth and through the eighteenth century on the importance of having not just a large population, but of having a large, healthy, productive population as a source of national strength. So this is is before Malthus. So that's part of the reason why Malthus, writing at the end of the 18th century, was so surprising to people. It was because what he was saying, that populations could become too large flew in the face of what had really become by then absolutely conventional wisdom. I remember reading a comment from, I think, a Spanish writer from the 1740s saying, you know, there is not a single rational person who does not accept the obvious fact that the larger a population, the stronger a state. So (laughs) there was was a strong interest in building up not just a large population, but a healthy, productive population. And in fact, it's the same, if I'm recalling correctly, the same Spanish statesman who commented on this, you know, that every fool recognizes this this fact. He went on to say something like, well, you know, when I say a large population, I do not mean a large population of idle beggars and vagabonds, because those people are useless to the state, which would be better off without them. I mean, a large population of productive, hardworking individuals. So there was a, There was this general consensus, that's what you needed to have a strong state. And there was also a general consensus that to have a healthy, hardworking, industrious population, they needed to be well-fed. So that's where food entered in. So how do you ensure that the population is well-fed? Well... One approach might be to have a substantial distribution of wealth that would direct more resources to poor people and allow them to feed themselves better and to become stronger and healthier through better diets. That was not the view that was embraced by most of the people participating in this debate. So the quest was was not for social redistribution of wealth or for an upending of the social order. It was for very cheap, nourishing foods. Ideally, things that were more nourishing and cheaper than wheat. These prince, the primary grain of, of Western Europe in particular, but better than grain in general. So there was a general sense that it would be very good if people were, would eat l- less wheat or barley, or, well, particularly wheat and barley, rye to some degree, if they could get off these grains which could then be exported to other countries which hadn't implemented such a wonderful dietary change so that there would be a benefit to the exchequer through the export of wheat and that the people who were both harvesting the wheat and working in industry and also um, working in the Navy and in armies could be eating something that was cheaper and more nourishing, enter the potato. So this really is how the potato then became this topic of governance, because it was seen as being a cheap, nourishing, population-building staple.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Oh,
2: wait. um, hearing you talk about this? I'm wondering, is there any way that, um, is the potato... Gendered in these discussions, given that um, you mentioned um, the army, the navy, um, the working um, working force of of a nation. So, is there a, a discussion in in terms of of gender of the productive part of the population being mostly males? <sighs>
0: So yes and no. So it's, you're absolutely right that almost all of this discussion was posited on building up male bodies. Mm-hmm. Women featured in the building – well, let me rephrase that as a question. Where did women feature in the process of building up a large, healthy population? They featured through reproduction. Right. So one of the things that was said to be good about potatoes – was that they were thought to be productive of breast milk. Mm. So there was discussions about how potatoes encourage lactation, which allowed women to breastfeed their own babies, which was another topic of obsession during this period. There was a, mm. a great deal of concern about the high mortality rates that were caused by babies not being breastfed. And as one writer at the time put it, you, know, with, you know, at the, what a loss to the state – for all all these, no, these babies to die who could have been so many workers, so many laborers, so many honest grenadiers. So there was things that were lactation and um, promoting were helpful, were contributed directly to the to building up this healthy population, and potatoes were also said to be a good food for children, that children were said to absolutely adore, that matched their physiology, that was considered a a good childhood food that children liked. So potatoes featured in this population discourse, not just in terms of building up hardy worker, male worker bodies, but also in in helping the reproductive process that was important to, to population. But the the typical potato eater, I think it's, it's you're right, was, was posited as a man. And, uh, well, I assume um, that women also
2: uh, were important in terms of feeding and cooking, right? They probably were um, some of the first, I assume, uh, experimenting with new dishes and um, recipes.
0: Well, in fact, not only with new dishes and recipes, but also with growing potatoes, because the I mean, here we're talking about Europe for the uh, so there are stories that one could tell about other parts of the world, but just sticking to to Europe right now, the it seems that potatoes, when they were first being grown as an as a foodstuff for people just to eat in an ordinary way, that they were being grown in cottage gardens, not in open fields, not not like wheat or not on a large scale. They were grown around a cottage, on the plots of land that people might have if they were small peasant farmers, if they had a little garden around their, their cottage. And the people who tended those gardens were generally women. So women were probably the people who were doing a lot of this adapting of figuring out how you make potatoes grow effectively in Europe's varied climates. It was probably women who were doing that experimentation. So they were probably among the first growers of potatoes as well as being the people who were figuring out ways to eat them and ways to prepare them. So, yeah, absolutely. Women were part of this story as producers and as cooks. Right. So, Well, in
2: that sense, um, this brings us back to um, what you said in the beginning, that um, your book puts ordinary peasants, ordinary people, farmers, among them, women who are um, generally excluded from these um macro historical narratives um really puts them in the center stage of these innovations both in agriculture and, and culinary terms um and you 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 talk a little bit about this um at the end of your book, so could you tell our listeners um how or why do you think it's important to look at these um small-scale contributors when addressing issues of global history that um, they, they really can be taunting in terms of how macro and um, all-encompassing these historical narratives are.
0: Well, I think there's both a, a historical dimension to it and a, a contemporary dimension, I suppose. So it's partly a question about what kinds of stories are the, we want to be exploring about the past and what sorts of degrees of agency do we want to be identifying. So there's there's some interesting work by scholars who have tried to study the global dissemination of foods, not just in the wake of European the European invasion of the Americas, but also other processes that have disseminated foods around the world. And scholars have noted that very often we have minimal information on who it was who was bringing a particular new food here or there. It's clear, for example, that sailors must have played a really important role in spreading a lot of foodstuffs. That's, it's probably Galician sailors sailing from, um, from northwestern Spain who brought potatoes to Ireland. There are all sorts of trade links between Ireland and Spain in the early modern period. It really must have been sailors who were, who were doing that. But well, we don't know their names. We don't know who they are. They're not recorded in the annals of history because what they were doing was not considered particularly interesting and was not generally very visible to most of the people who were recording histories. So we have only fragmentary bits of evidence about how these foods spread. And there's really brilliant work that's been done on this um, by Judith Karnoff, for example, looking at the introduction first of, of rice and then a number of other foodstuffs from West Africa into the mm-hmm. Americas, for example, where she's tried to, to trace out the agents of this introduction of foods from of, of West African foods into the Americas. So it's partly a question to say we should try to look for this. We should be paying attention to who are the people who are really behind major dietary change. And They're often not the people who are recording what they see. they are, uh, uh, you know, people who are best at being recorded, but who are perhaps not themselves writing the records. But I also think it's relevant for thinking about how we feed ourselves today, because there's been so much research coming out of of agronomy and in um, other fields, not so not his, not historical fields, looking at the importance of small farmers in preserving diversity and in preserving what people sometimes refer to as you know the giant the genetic diversity of the foods that we rely on so i think there's ever more recognition at all levels that we need diversity to be able to feed ourselves and we'll need and where is that diversity being preserved who are the custodians of the great varieties of many different sorts of foods on which we're going to be perhaps relying, that seems to be what science is suggesting. Well, the custodians are small farmers,
2: mm-hmm.
0: so recognizing that they're not just people who've had a historically important role in the past, but they have a probably a really vital role to play today. I think is is useful for us to to be aware of. Yeah, you mentioned
2: um, that it's even a matter of historical justice, right? That uh, it's relevant today too.
0: Yeah, I think so. So I mean, there's there's this. Much quoted line from from E.P. Thompson's *The Making of the English Working Class* about rescuing, you know, the poorest stocking framer from the enormous condescension of posterity. And I mean, it's an overused quote, but I think it's overused because he was capturing something very important about one of the things that his, history should try to do: is rescue people from the enormous condescension of posterity. So
2: Could you um,
0: tell us a little about in what? What type
2: of sources do these small farmers or peasants pop up? Because um, we have the shiny, um, shiny essays by philosophers on one side. So, what, um, what sources um,
0: are they in? One of the things that I thought was, I found an interesting source were what, it, what in Europe are called tithe disputes. So I mean, things as 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 we know, people often people whose lives don't feature very prominently in the historical record do enter the historical record at certain moments, perhaps baptism, marriage, death, and also if they get caught up in court cases. So Mm -hmm. so tithe disputes are court cases that were generated by disagreements between. Um, people who were subject to the tithe, to the ecclesiastical tax that was levied on um, agricultural production. So when people who were subject to the tithe fell into dispute with the church over precisely what they should be handing over in tithes. And so there are tithe disputes from many different parts of of Europe. And I, and a number of other scholars, I'm not the first person to have done this by any means, have looked have used tithe disputes as a way of tracing the presence of new crops, because tithe, tithe law is incredibly complicated. <laughs> I mean, it was a, um, I, but what is subject to the tithe and what isn't is complicated, which is part of the reason that there could be lawsuits about this because it's not completely open and shut. But one of the sorts of tithe disputes that started to emerge in the 18th century, in particular. had to do with the status of potatoes as a tithable crop. So we started to get tithe disputes in which clergymen were saying, I expect to be given an appropriate tithe on your potato harvest, villagers. And the villagers would reply by saying, no, 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 no. We've been growing these potatoes for a long time and nobody has ever collected tithes on them. So, uh uh-uh. And... That then generates a legal record, which we can then go back to, and we can then try to we can look at these disputes and see what did the villagers say. You know, they, there are lots of disputes in which people were saying, you know, since time out of mind, we have been growing potatoes, and nobody ever collected a tithe on them before. So custom and mm. practice means they're not tithed. Sometimes there are tithe disputes in which villagers said, oh, no, the potato is a totally new crop. We're only growing it this year, and we don't need to pay a tithe on it because it's utterly new. But generally, the argument was, Nobody has ever asked about a tithe before, and these potatoes have been growing here for a very, very long time. So we can start to build up a sort of chronology of potatoes in those particular regions. So that's one sort of source you can use. Other sorts of sources are the writings of the very gentleman botanists and learned individuals who were indeed interested in potatoes in the 16th and 17th centuries when they were spreading around Europe to begin with because those people left all sorts of written records about potatoes, and if we look at what they say, they often say things like, ordinary people in Northern Italy seem to be planting these new foods all over the place, and they cook them the same way that they do turnips. So you mm-hmm. can look in the writings of, of literate individuals to see what they have to say about who's growing these things, and that also will sometimes put the spotlight unordinary people cookbooks too early modern cookbooks can give you some insights into these things because sometimes when they mention potatoes and of course it's a little tricky what is a potato you know you have to then go back and say is this thing a potato that's being mentioned here what is this earth apple is that a potato is it (laughs) the cyclamen root what is it but sometimes these descriptions will describe how This new food is being grown in every peasant garden, so it's very common, or that sort of thing. So those are some of the sources that I try to use. Yeah, I was going to mention that um,
2: your book features uh, a couple of recipes here and there that illustrate um, really just how pervasive and um, expanded potatoes were at different moments in time and and regions, that it was um, really... um, really fascinating to read those recipes um, in parallel with with the history you're writing.
0: Oh, I'm delighted that you found that you liked (laughs) that. It was a really, I was so happy when Cambridge University Press said, why don't you put some recipes in? Because I, I agree, I think recipes are an interesting historical source. And they're also just inherently fascinating. Yeah, no, um, all it now we have to cook them, right? <laughs> <To> really... Exactly. <laughs> Which I'm sure yeah. you, you have. I would I particularly recommend the Persian rice with a potato topping. That is a really nice oh, rice dish. That one sounded delightful. That's
2: that's one that stuck in my mind.
0: Yeah, I so, recommend um, it strongly.
2: <laughs> because of the nature of of um your topic, um you're Research like impressively explores different histories, different contexts, languages, deals with many kinds of sources and and cuts across historical periods. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the particular challenges of such an approach, which is different from your previous work? You're uh, right, uh, originally a historian of colonial Spanish America. And you really almost touched into almost the twentieth century in this book,
0: so it has certainly involved a type of a a, a level of collaboration mm-hmm. greater than than I had ever done before so the last the last project this the body of the conquistador well, as you were reminding me you have actually you sent me some information um and about potatoes, for example, so i've was very grateful to um, generous writers of all sorts when I was working on the body of the conquistador to send me snippets of information about food when people knew that was what I was working on. People said, oh, maybe you'll be interested in this. But I relied on that to a, a wholly different degree with, with the potato. So I, I talked to lots and lots and lots of people. And I shamelessly asked for <laughs> help with people who had competence and languages that I completely lacked. So I relied on friends who were who could um, help me decipher Latin, who could understand Greek, who could understand Icelandic, who understood Russian, who understood Chinese, to to help me use sources that I couldn't read myself. So that is a different kind of res- of research where you're you're really um, drawing on on work that other people do and incorporating materials that you're not able to read yourself. So that's that's distinctive. And so, I mean, I tried to bumble my way through as many languages as I was able to, and I can do a certain amount of that. But Chinese, I really had to rely on either things that were translated into English or ask friends to say, well, what does this actually mean? And that's It's a different kind of scholarship. It's very, it's very collegial, it's very fun because you work with a lot of yeah. other people. So I, that's, that, I think, was, the, was a distinctive thing. And you also have to be, um, what, what, well, what else would I say? I guess that would be the principal thing I would say about it, that it, it, it's this kind of global history is built on collaboration. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, at the end of your last chapter, um, where you explore the role of the potato as a political instrument, particularly by way of, of national programs of dietary intervention, um in different parts of the world you write that um and i quote potatoes tell us both about who we are as individuals and also about where collectively we are headed um i thought this was i was very intrigued by this particular sentence that closes this chapter it, could you um expand on on this idea i i was very interested in in what you had to say
0: Well, so I think when I was talking about where we're headed, I was thinking about these questions of biodiversity and the role of non-industrial agriculture in providing a model for how the world is going to feed itself. So I was particularly thinking about that and thinking about where people like, well, Andean potato farmers, where they figure into models for food for the future So I I mentioned a little while ago that this is apparently the um, UN's International Year of Fruit and Vegetables. And the first international year of the United Nations that was devoted to a foodstuff was in 2008, and it was devoted to the potato. Hmm. That was the first time that the FAO, or the UN really, got interested in foods as something you would have an international year of. There had been international years of women, and international year of refugees and things like that. But now there have been lots, since the potato, there have been lots of different international years of um, all sorts of different foodstuffs. But the potato was the first. And it marked really a sea change, I think, in how these big organizations like the FAO thought about the role of peasant farmers in feeding the world. So in the with the emergence in the years after the Second World War of what people sometimes call developmentalism, with the focus on thinking about food as a source of international security or insecurity and thinking about food as something that needed to be managed in the new global post-war order, something that organizations like, well, the Rockefeller Foundation was really involved in, for example, there was a huge focus on internationally traded commodities like rice or wheat or sugar. But there was very, very little attention to the very ordinary foods, tubers in particular, that fed a huge percentage of the world and, and this was despite the fact that let's say for example the UN's own data showed that tubers were incredibly important to feeding people in in many parts of Africa for example many parts of Latin America many parts of the world but they weren't interested they the tubers were not relevant to a model of food security that was emerging in the post-war years but I and mean, this continued really into the 1970s, but after that, that view started to become less and less tenable for a whole series of different reasons, and which ultimately led even really big organizations like the UN recognizing the fundamental importance that non-market commodities and locally exchanged commodities and small farmers played in feeding the world. So I think the potato was really emblematic of that recognition of the contributions of local markets, locally grown foods, and small farmers to actually feeding the world and to providing models for the future. So I think that was what I particularly had in mind with that perhaps rather gnomic sentence.
2: <laughs> yeah, as I was uh, reading your book. I couldn't help but think, um, well, this book was published almost right when the COVID-19 pandemic hit mm. in 2020, right? And I couldn't help but think of those. I don't know if you saw it in the news, the mountain of potatoes that farmers in Idaho were left with um, with <coughs> in the supply chain and um, in, in the market. And how just horrible that um, that image of Potatoes being being thrown away um, and and being wasted um, because of of how the pandemic changed um, the food supply chain for at least the first couple of months. Um, and so, where do you think what what do you think um, what kind of insight does your research give you in terms of of the potato in particular today, but also more generally um, in Um, the ideas that we have of eating um, today and issues like food security like you mentioned.
0: Yeah, those images were really striking and that's what what that reminds us. So why did that happen? That reminds us that so much of the potato crop that's produced in the US, for example, goes to make processed foods, processed potato Mm -hmm. foods, and Particularly, and I mean, th- I think if I understood it correctly, the reason why—and it wasn't just the U.S. that this happened—the reason why there was such a problem for potato farmers was because of the role of um, French fries and other deep-fried potato products in the restaurant business. Right. So, so I think that was what was that was what was causing this, right? It was that restaurants and the, the um, retail food industry shut down, and so there wasn't the same. There wasn't. A call for these potatoes because they were really destined for for the restaurant for, sector, mm-hmm. understood broadly. And so that kind of, yeah, that should make us think about what are, for what are we growing this food? I mean, potatoes weren't the only thing that suffered in that way, of course. I mean, there were, you know, millions of liters of pints of milk were being thrown away because yeah. of Starbucks shutting down and things like that. But so it part of what makes it should, it should make us think about the distribution of food, what we grow it for, how we can provide the kind of resilience to our, our food system that we started thinking about perhaps in ways with an acuteness that we, perhaps not everybody had done with the first part of the pandemic. And so, you know, small, you know, local supermarkets, local stores started to become really important during this period when people didn't want to be venturing far or couldn't venture far so all sorts of um ways of provisioning other than the supermarket started to be in the spotlight i think with the first wave of the pandemic and i I think that's probably wholesome that we think about that Mm -hmm. and i think in in that
2: same sense um a lot of us cooked at home much more and went out less um so it also um, makes you think about um how we're eating what we 're eating and how we 're cooking it, and really uh, the the nutritional value of of the food we generally consume pre pandemic and during and hopefully both at some point
0: <laughs> well i agree and i also i mean this to to not not to veer off too much into a a non potato topic, but I think <laughs> that the we we also i think we witnessed how cooking is a way of re a of sort of what's the right word that I'm looking for? It's a way of of building connections to people who are absent, mm-hmm. yeah. and that cooking foods that your family cooked, people that you can't see cooked, or using technologies to cook over Zoom together or to be sharing meals together over various platforms, or to be getting people who are not there with you to be sharing their recipes with you. There's a there's a beautiful article that appeared recently in one of the British papers about um, um, a man who finally convinced his grandmother in India to teach him how to, to cook some of her key recipes during the pandemic. And so I think we, we really saw how cooking was a way of of reaffirming that was the word i was looking for the family connections and the social connections that that build up our world so even when we couldn't see anybody because we were all in lockdown we could be using food to be making these these connections
2: yeah absolutely and also to connect with with the world around us like um not only nature but also um the farmers and Really made us conscious about where our food comes from, I think,
0: yeah,
2: so just um to close up our interview, I wanted to ask um, in in one of your chapters, you talk about um how the amazing flavor of potatoes and really the sensorial pleasure of potatoes played a part in in many of the ideas um That surround the potato as being as really um, symbolizing um, the the principles of laissez-faire of letting the population choose um, what they ate, and it was very um, very convenient that um, the potato was both very calorific and nutritious and also delicious. Um, So I wanted to ask you um, how that particular idea of sensorial pleasure um, played into your process of writing this book. Like you mentioned um, this, this great dish um, that is featured in, in your book. Um, so how did you relate to this object of study that is both in writing in the books, but also very much present in everyday
0: life? Today. Well, I do like potatoes, so <laughs> so I guess I what am I, what do I want to say about my relationship with potatoes? Which I guess that's sort of what you're about my my sense about the culinary and gustatory pleasures of of eating potatoes outside of. I mean, is that what you're asking about? Or yeah, just um, how
2: the material um, connection with with. The the object of study um, played a part in in your
0: academic um, work. So I guess I did that in a variety of different ways. So one is I w- I have been interested in trying some of these iconic recipes from particular moments of the past. I, I try I've been interested in that, conscious of all of the complexities of the idea that you're recreating a dish from the past, and I mean you can never. Um, put into your mouth on a fork what people in past decades, let alone centuries, actually tasted. And and because taste isn't a historical phenomenon. It was Jeffrey Pilcher gave a very nice talk a, a little while ago in which he was talking about how taste, he said, is fundamentally about memory. And he said, so nobody can ever taste the same thing. That taste is fundamentally um, individualized. So which I think is a really interesting idea. So I I don't pretend that by cooking a recipe from the 18th century I'm in any way tasting what people in the 18th century tasted but there are some features of the haptic experience of cooking that I think are worth thinking about so certain processes how do you how do what is it like to stir something what is it like to sieve something how do you skim off potato starch if you try to make it at home. I think those sorts of experiences are also interesting to try to recapture historically. So we could try to think about history as not just something that happens in words that we can recover, but also in bodily experiences that we can in some way try to investigate. So I've been quite interested in that as, as something that has a has a place in research, even if I don't feel I'm the best theorist of what that place is. I think that's something other people have have written interestingly about. So I've been, I've been, that's been interesting to me from a scholarly point of view. I've also just been really interested in finding potato recipes that are worth trying. And <laughs> I, was reading, I was reading these 18th century debates about potatoes that I, I finally realized how to boil potatoes properly. Oh, thank you. you. Fair. Well, so yeah, so first of all, um, boil them whole. If you want to cut them up later, you cut them up later. So
2: mm-hmm. if you
0: boil them whole, that is better. It also keeps the nutrients in better. Not that that was particularly how people discussed it in the 18th century, but the key thing is start them out in cold water mm-hmm. and bring them slowly, slowly, slowly to the boil. So boil them from cold and as, at, as low a temperature as you can sustain. And that produces a really good boiled potato. And people, you know, scientists talked about this in the 18th century. That was considered the Irish method of cooking yeah, Irish potatoes. Method. Yeah, and it's so, I, that's something I learned. Well, there you have it now. Um, a little bit of
2: even practical potato advice came out of this interview. Well, thank you so much, Professor Earl, for uh, being here and, and talking with us today really enjoyed your book um and really really excited to what um your next project um will be in the future
0: well thank you so much for giving an opportunity to talk about a topic that as you can see i i've remained fascinated by thank you so much thank you take care